On today's podcast, I'm really excited to be joined by the co-founder and CEO of one of my favorite tools, Coda. Shashir Marotra came over from YouTube to found Coda several years ago, and we're going to be talking about the background on the origin story of how Coda came to be, as well as how the pandemic has impacted their operations, thoughts on distributed work, eigen questions, what? Yes, eigen questions, and a lot more. So we'll be right back with that conversation after a quick word from our sponsor. Redefining HR, one podcast at a time. Support for the Redefining HR podcast comes from PIN. PIN is building the world's first employee-centric communications tool, enabling your employees to automatically receive helpful messages at key moments throughout their journey, from onboarding to promotions and everywhere in between. PIN helps companies battle communication overload and puts your employees in control over when and how they receive information. Go to PINHQ.com for more information. That's P-Y-N-H-Q.com. And reinvent employee communications for the distributed workplace. And now, on to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Redefining HR podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt. And today, I am really excited to be joined by the co-founder and CEO of Coda, Shashir Marotra. We're going to talk about Shashir's career spanning YouTube and Coda and really dig into how he is working through some of the uh, things that we're navigating in 2020 on the people side. So, Shashir, thanks so much for coming in and uh, joining me on the podcast. If you wouldn't mind, why don't you give the listeners just a brief introduction on you? Uh, hey, Lars, great to great to be here. Um, so I'm Shishir Marotra. I am, as uh, Lars mentioned, uh, the CEO and co-founder of Coda. Um, for people who are less familiar, Coda is a new type of document, blends the best parts of docs, sheets, slides, and, and uh, applications into one new surface, or the promise is that anyone can make a doc as powerful as an app. Um, before starting Coda, I... Uh, was at Google for a number of years, and uh, most of that time I was responsible for the YouTube products. Uh, before that, I was at Microsoft, worked on Windows, Office, and SQL Server, and started a company before that called Centrata. Yeah, and so I'm I'm excited to chat with you. You know, I was introduced to Shashir by Kenny Mendez, uh, who works on the team. And uh, if you're familiar with some of the open source projects that I've been launching this year, uh, you have Kenny to thank for those because he has been my uh, my my Coda collaborator, helping me. Uh, take ideas and concepts and make them uh, functionally and, uh, and visually super interesting and interactive. And uh, really, that's the power of Coda. So I want to get more into the, the platform and kind of, you know, your role, particularly your perspective on some of the people operations aspects of the organization. Um, but before we even get into that, I want to start with eigen questions. Because when we were, uh, you know, prepping and having some conversations about uh, the podcast, uh, I know that you you have a very interesting way of framing big problems called eigen questions. So you know, let's start there. Where did that come from? Yeah. So eigen questions. There's a. It's a. It's a, first off a made up word. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think if you uh, Google around for it, you'll only find uh, find me talking about it. But the uh, the it's been very useful. It's a it's a riff on a term from linear algebra. Um, about how to think about multidimensional problem spaces. Um, and the, the basic idea is the eigen question is the question that uh, when you have a list of multiple questions, it's the question that when answered, um, 
ends up answering many other questions as well. The, the concept in linear algebra is called eigenvectors, which is about finding the most discriminating vector in a multidimensional space. Uh, but you don't really need to know the, the math part of it. Just think about it as the most important question. Um, and the, the sort of core philosophy here is we spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to get to the right answers. And in my opinion, not enough time trying to figure out how to get to the right question. Um, so maybe I'll tell a, a quick story about the origins of eigenquestions. The, when I had joined, I joined YouTube in 2008. So pretty soon after the acquisition, the uh, team had a lot of different questions in front of it. And one of the ones that was sort of debilitating to the team was something we called the link out question. And the, the question was fairly simple. People would come to YouTube and they would search. YouTube was already the second biggest search engine on the planet. And they would search for things. And sometimes we didn't have good results. And, and the example that was used a lot was the most popular TV show at the time was called Modern Family. And uh, we didn't have Modern Family on YouTube. We had uh, you know, pretty poor results for the query. Uh, but ABC.com was posting full episodes of Modern Family. So the question was, uh, should we redirect people, or as we call it, link out to ABC.com? And the team was super divided on this. On one side, there was the product and engineering teams whose viewpoint was basically, you know, we now are owned by Google. Google's whole ethos is uh, give users the answers they want. And so we should absolutely link to wherever the right place is to get to the content that the user is looking for. The, the business side, all the business development folks, the content, part, content partnerships folks, the marketing folks, they saw it the opposite way. And they said, look, if you do that, we're never going to convince these content to live on YouTube because we're just going to refer people out to these, these other properties. And, and so basically everything was stalled. We, we couldn't make progress on this decision. It was, it was affecting a bunch of other decisions and, and so on. And this, this went on for months. And then we had this uh, offsite where we had a set of topics we were going to work through and I raised my hand to cover this one. And my job was to frame the question so that we could finally get to a decision. It's like, we're going to, we're not leaving until we get to a decision on this. Um, and the, <clears throat> the, so the approach I took for the offsite was to try to reframe the question a little bit differently. The, the, in this, at the same time, one of the other questions happening at Google was this question about Google shopping and Amazon. And uh, if, just to remind people at that time, uh, Google had started an effort originally called Frugal uh, that became Google Shopping. And one of the questions being asked was, how come Google Shopping isn't doing better versus Amazon? E even then, it was already clear Amazon was doing much better. The, and everybody inside the company was really struggling with this because it seemed really obvious that Google Shopping should be kicking Amazon's butt for a very simple reason. Google Shopping indexed all of Amazon. Uh, and, the, the, and the general ethos was something we called comprehensive versus uh, uh, comprehensiveness versus consistency, or is it better to be consistent over comprehensive? And, and the idea there was, hey, we, we cover, why would you ever go to Amazon if you can come to Google and search? You can find everything on Amazon plus everything around the whole web. But of course, users weren't, weren't thinking that way. Users would tell us that they, they, they went to Amazon for a number of reasons. They felt like the reviews were more, more, um, uh, were more consistent. The shipping experience was more consistent. Uh, the, just the way the website work was clear, the way pricing work was clear. And what was happening was that in the shopping space, consistency was beating comprehensiveness. 
And so the way we framed this for this offsite was rather than think about this as link out versus don't link out or what had basically become a, a good versus evil debate, we said, what if we re rethought this as consistency versus comprehensiveness? And said, which, which one do we think the video space is going to play out as? And, you know, once we had that frame, now that could, you could have a really good debate. Which, which one is going to matter more to users, a, a consistent experience or a comprehensive experience? And after a long set of discussions, we decided that cons we believe consistent would win out over comprehensive. And we made the decision not to link out. And YouTube still doesn't link out uh, even now. Now, that decision turned out to become really important because once we made that decision, it got brought up over and over and over again. So we had a bunch of people that were embedding their video players on YouTube, and we quickly turned that off and said, this is not a consistent experience. We're going we're gonna to run things through our player. Uh, probably the most iconic decision we made was with uh, the team at Apple. So Apple, uh, people remember when the iPhone came out, the um, Apple built all the apps for the iPhone, and they were still building... Uh, the YouTube app at this point, and it's already you know a few years in, and that app was far behind what the rest of the YouTube experience was. So far behind that almost half the catalog didn't even play back on the iPhone. And so I went down to uh, Cupertino and met with the Apple exec team and told them, "Hey, we're going to take back uh, control of the YouTube app for the iPhone and build it ourselves." And they, their initial reaction was, "I don't understand how you, why you would do that. You're gonna you're gonna give up default distribution on the the biggest mobile operating system." Uh, you know, what are you going to get out of that? And I said, well, this is an easy choice for us because we've already decided that we'd rather have a consistent experience over a comprehensive one. And this is in keeping with our values. So, so that's just one example of reframing a question to what I call the eigen question. And, and the, the sort of abstracting back a bit, what we found is that you'll end up in conversations a lot where there's 10 different questions to answer. And if you find, if you look at them carefully, there's often one question where if you answered that question first, you not only will shortcut a bunch of other discussion, you probably end up answering the other nine questions as well. And so that's the concept of eigen questions. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, is I think once you have, you know, uh, such a foundational question answered like that, it kind of makes other like questions much easier uh, to answer because right. the precedent is there and you have your, you know, your, your kind of North star, if you will, uh, around how you make that decision. So that's a, uh, that's that's fascinating. Um, you know, when you I know when you think about career development, uh, you know, in in the you, know, you have an analogy that you've used around big pond and small pond. And I thought it was a fascinating way of framing uh, how to think about career decisions. And I think for a lot of listeners out there, you know, many of the listeners are in the HR and people space, uh, they're, they're on both sides of this discussion. Um, you know, I'm curious, right. could, you, could you walk me through that a bit more? Like, what, how, do you, how do you think about the notion of big pond and small pond? The, the eigen question of job decisions. Yeah, exactly. I think it's <laughs> big pond, small pond. And I, I would say, you know, I've been, I've been doing this for over 20 years and, and ended up not only making my own career decisions, but advised, you know, hundreds of different people on their decisions. And this, this analogy... I do think is, um, to use that term, I do think it's the, generally the eigen question of most career decisions. And the, the analogy is fairly simple. It's in every job decision, you're either going to be the small fish in a big pond or the big fish in a small pond. And everybody's heard that before. The, the thing that I think is uh, a unique way to think about it is to think about it in terms of the difference between job decisions uh, that are big pond versus small ponds. So if you're going to be a small fish in a big pond, you're going to go join 
Google or or IBM or or so on, you know, the the size of the pond is fairly fixed. You know, that company is what it is. It's going to uh, continue to probably be be at in the order of magnitude, roughly same size uh, as it currently is. Sort of no matter what you do. And so the question for those job opportunities is less about the pond and more about the size of the fish. And so you have to ask questions that are really correlated to when I join this place, will I be able to grow as a, as a fish? And, and so th- those mean things like, you know, who will I work for and what will my job title be and what will my project be? And is that project set up for success or not? Which all sort of you know, amounts to, will I get promoted? Yeah. And, and that, that's sort of the, the heart of when you're joining a big pond, you know, you got to figure out, will I, as a fish, be able to grow inside that pond? Now, on the flip side, when you're going to be the big fish in a small pond, you now need to worry about the size of the pond, not the size of the fish. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But, you know, I think, first off, economically, they're mostly incented that way. You, you know, small ponds tend to tend to give out equity as one of their main forms of compensation. And so they're incenting you to think about the size of the pond. But also, I think just the experience of working one of these companies is is vastly different if the pond is growing and if it's not. And if these ponds grow, they tend to create lots of opportunity. They tend to create new job opportunities, new new um, uh, experience opportunities. It gives people a chance to grow themselves. And, and what I find is this question of when you're joining a small pond, you have to think about will the pond grow is a really hard question for employees because we don't tend to teach employees how to think about the size of ponds. Yeah. And that's a job we generally give to investors. And so I find it easiest to, to first off, ask people, divide these job, job opportunities into two completely different sets. When you're when you're talking about big ponds and small ponds, don't mix them together. They're very different rubrics for, for joining them. You know, as an example, I'll often have people come and say, well, you know, I want to join this small company because they're going to make me the VP of blah, blah, blah. Um, and and I, I'll often ask them and say, that's probably the wrong way to think about it. You know, first tell me, ignore whether you're going to join the company or not. Uh, just tell me, would you invest in the company? Would you take your next few years of income and put it into that company? Or if one of your friends or your parents or, or someone else said, hey, should I invest in this company? Would you give an enthusiastic yes? And the way I like to think about it is if it's not worth your money, it's probably not worth your time. But all of it is really about reframing and focusing on, you know, for big ponds, you have to worry about the size of the fish. And for small ponds, you have to worry about the size of the pond. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting too, because I think, uh, you know, you're right. A lot of job seekers, they might get, you know, uh, drawn to a small pond environment, whether it's the title, whether, you know, but without really grasping the potential of the pond, the potential of the business. And I think framing it around, like, would you put your money in this? Is this something you would actually invest in? I think that actually allows them to step back and, and think about it a bit differently perhaps than, you know, thinking about it, you know, oh, I really like this hiring manager or I really like the culture or some of these other things, which are certainly valid, uh, you know, criteria when you're considering a company. But it, it, but it's a different way of looking at it, I think, than some of those things that you perhaps can get charmed by that might, you know, that might blind you a bit towards the actual potential of the pond. Right, exactly. Yeah, I, 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 it's, it's been a very sticky analogy um, uh, as people make those decisions. Yeah, so I'm, I want to jump into to people operations a little bit. So, you know, as as a as a co-founder and CEO uh, in 2020, this is a uh, you know I'd say 
your role is uh, is an exceptionally you know, always an exceptionally difficult role. But I think you know the role of a CEO, much like the role of a, a CHRO chief people officer, uh, tremendous amounts of of pressure and volatility and stress. Uh, given all things 2020. And so, you know, what's been interesting is to watch the, uh, I think that the relationship between the CEO and the, you know, the CHR, the CPO, whatever the title might be, uh, has always been key, especially when you look at leading organizations, high-performing organizations, but especially in 2020, when there's so many volatile, um, you know, very kind of people-focused uh, moments that have been occurring throughout the year. And so I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, you know, how, how is your relationship with your people team evolved? And, you know, when you think about the, the kind of people leader and the traits of a people leader that can help guide, you know, you specifically, as you think through, you think about, you know, how you're navigating 2020, what do you look for in a people leader? And how would you kind of describe that relationship that you have? And maybe how has that changed in 2020? Yeah. So, I mean, first off, I'll say I, I've been blessed both at Coda and previously at, at YouTube to have a fantastic people team. Um, you know, at Coda, you already mentioned the the, uh, the person who runs our team is uh, Kenny Mendez, uh, who before coming to Coda used to run the recruiting team at Box. Um, and at Coda, I've, uh, he's grown into so many different responsibilities and covers, it sort of feels like he runs half the company now. Um, and uh, on his team, he has Rachel Timmy, uh, who runs HR, and, uh, and Harry Denbaum, who, who runs the recruiting function. Um, and that sort of forms the backbone of our, of our people team. Um, and they're all three absolutely excellent. Um, you know, and I think, I think there's lots of things that people talk about, about great people teams. And it's a, it's a really challenging job because it's one of the, w- w- an interesting mix of incredibly strategic and incredibly operational jobs. Yeah. Um, and you have to you have to be pretty good at all the details and you have to be able to see the big picture. Uh, and then the other axis, I think, is it's one of the jobs that requires both right brain and left brain thinking a lot. And it's one of the jobs that requires the deepest sense of empathy, uh, but also a fairly clinical sense of, you know, accountability or, uh, uh, you know, uh, rigor and 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 uh, and balance and so on and so i think it's a very challenging uh job and i've been lucky to have a set of, of people that that really managed to, to balance between that strategic versus operational that right brain versus left brain if i i'll i'll, I'll step back a moment and describe the characteristics that i think are most important for uh, and, and this is actually not that specific to people executives, but is is exemplified there. Yeah. I had to pick a single rubric that I evaluate people on. It, it's using a uh, an acronym called PSHE. Uh, it stands for Problem, Solution, How, Execution. And maybe I'll, I, this actually started by how I evaluated product managers, and then it's grown to cover every different discipline. Uh, but I'll, I'll tell you the quick story of where this came from. So. Uh, back back at Google um, in 2012 or so, you know, Larry took over as CEO from Eric, and one of the one of the things he did early on was he split the company from being functionally organized to being uh, organized into business units. Um, kind of surprising that Google was already 20 plus thousand people, and we still had each function uh, reporting directly in Derek Schmidt, uh, you know, finance, engineering, HR, so on. Um, and so Larry changed that and split us all up. 
and the uh, uh, that led to a bunch of interesting conversations, and it led to a rethinking of a bunch of uh, a bunch of practices. And so, one of the ones that happened was we uh, we were going through the, the period of, of doing performance reviews and calibration, uh, and I got asked to come up with the calibration model for product managers across the company, which is which is now especially challenging because we all had different business units, right? Um, and, and so we ran this exercise that I thought was really intriguing. So we sat down and um, we the way Google ran performance calibration was it was done by committee. So instead of having your manager decide what your your review and your grade was uh, and whether or not you got promoted, you would go to this committee of peers and they would decide you get promoted or not promoted. And so I had to come up with how what's the speech going to be to this committee? How are we going to direct them on what is a good product manager and a not so good product manager? And what's the difference between a level five product manager and a level six product manager? So um, we sat down to do the prep meeting and we had this this level rubric, which I'm sure, you know, every every one of your listeners has has one of these for their for every role in their company. And so we sat down and we looked at this product management one and it hadn't really been changed in a, in, in a, uh, basically a dozen years. And so it was kind of full of all sorts of random things. Right? And so what I did was I cut it into little slices of paper, uh, uh, one per level, and I cut off the title and the number and said, just look at the rubric and tell me what level it is. And nobody could do it. I mean, these were all the top product leaders of the company. There were eight of us and, and said, uh, you know what, to tell me what, what this, uh, what this set of bullets represents. And they would say things like, um, this person can manage a medium sized project and, um, uh, interviews candidates regularly. And, you know, some are well along the line, somebody added takes great notes in meetings uh, and all sorts of random things. Right. <laughs> and, and, uh, and this was, you know, group product manager. Um, and, uh, and we were looking at this and, and it was, it's kind of laughable. Nobody could identify which one was which level. Now, if you took all of them and you laid them out end to end, uh, you could, or you could order them and you could order them on exactly one line in every single one of them, which roughly corresponded to scope, right? And it was, you could basically, they, they look some version of, okay, this person manages a feature, this manages, this person manages a group of features, this person manages a sub area of product, this person manages a whole product, this person manages um, uh, a product line or multiple products. So everything else about it was like almost random, but that one dimension you could pick. And so we had a big debate about, should we just reduce it to that one dimension? Is that really what we're evaluating? And nobody liked it. And there's a couple of reasons nobody liked it. So first off, uh, it was incredibly poorly calibrated across divisions. Google search had one product that was called Google search. Uh, the Google ads team had like a hundred products because uh, every little one of them produced revenue and, and worked differently. And so the Google search team was like, that sounds stupid. We're going to, we have, you know, a hundred, a uh, hundred product managers here. How are we going to possibly get anybody promoted? If like, they're all going to want to go work on ads. Um, the second reason it wasn't good was it, the scope felt like uh, it felt like an input, not an output. Like you would say, Hey, this person manages this, this scope, they should get promoted. And we say, no, 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 we just gave them that scope. So how can you use that as a signal for whether or not they should be promoted? And then the third reason people didn't like it was it uh, most of our best people were working on things that were risky. And some of those things looked small. And it was completely not accounting for that, that the, you know these people work on a, a thing that might grow into something huge, but it's not yet. So, okay, people didn't like scope. And so, so we went back to the drawing board and said, what, what's another way we could think about this? 
And so we ended up coming up with this, this acronym, PSHE, uh, Problem Solution How Execution. And I'll, I'll say in advance, I've tried many, many ways to come up, to turn this into a word that's like, you know, <laughs> easy to pronounce. Right. And I have not been able to come up with one. So uh, you'll have to live with <laughs> the acronym. Uh, but let me explain the concept and I'll, I'll, de- I'll describe it in terms of product managers and I'll come back to your question on people executives. So the way it works is early in someone's career, they they get handed a problem, they get handed a solution and they get they get handed the how, they get handed a set of instructions and they say, uh, you should go to this meeting and you should write this document and you should you know talk to this partner and your job is E, your job is execute. And then gradually you get a little more senior and you get handed a problem, you get handed a solution, and now your job is figure out the how. And you're, you're figuring out, well, how should I set up the milestones and how should I set up the team and, and what's the best way to uh, motivate people and, and, and so on. Then gradually you, you get more senior and you get handed a problem and you come up with a solution, figure out how to solve the problem. And then finally, at the last step, uh, you get handed a space and you tell us the problems. Yeah. And you come back, I, I know you told me that I should f- focus on uh, uh, retention, but I think we should focus on activation. Or I know you told me to focus on user growth, but I really think that revenue is the real problem here. And interestingly, so that's that's what PSHE stands for. If you were to take these and think of them kind of as two axes on a on a chart, with scope being on one axis and and this PSHE frame being on the other axis, we did this. Uh, so we came up with this thing, and then this group of uh, of execs, we went and plotted a bunch of people onto these two axes and said, like, how much do they correlate? And what we found was it was basically like an S-curve. I'll try to describe it for the podcast. But early on in people's careers, they were mostly operating at the E level of PSHE. And they were getting increasing, increasing scope. Like it was, They were mostly executing on slightly bigger problems. Later in people's careers, the S kind of flattened out. And, and same thing. Like you were mostly at that P level. And you just got bigger and bigger products, bigger and bigger divisions. But in the middle the curve basically turned vertical. Like we were plotting all our different people and they were mostly on this vertical, meaning that the scope wasn't really what was changing. It was this PSHE access that was changing. Yeah. And so I was giving the speech to this, this calibration committee. And one of, the, one of the things we told them was I sort of drew this S curve and I said, hey, look, just so you understand, this, this may seem counterintuitive, but the, if you look at the difference between a level three and a level eight product manager, the difference may not be the job they do. It might be how they do the job. And that was that was like a little bit shocking. Um, by the way, that, that part of the app, when I talk to employees, I would often describe it as the trough of disillusionment. Like this is the period where people would look at it and they'd say, hey, my job isn't growing. Like, but like what what's what's changing about my expectations? And I would have to help them understand that it's not about growing your scope. It's about growing on this axis, PSHE axis. So over time, so we originally did this for product managers, and then I quickly discovered that, hey, this actually applies for just about every job. I mean, you can evaluate designers the same way. You evaluate engineers the same way. Um, you can evaluate salespeople the same way. And I, mean, I think one of the, you know, you ask people, who's the top performing salesperson? And people will often respond with, well, the one that beats their quota every quarter. And any smart salesperson, you ask their peers, they'll say, no, that's that's not true. That person just sandbags their quota at the beginning of that quarter. And so they beat it because they're really good at negotiating their quota. Uh, that's a terrible way to judge salespeople. <laughs> right. say, okay, so who's the best salesperson? And they'd say, well, look at this person. She is like the person you can drop into any situation 
and just figures out how to perform. And, you know, it could be a new territory. It could be a new product launch. It could be a churning customer. It could be a a growing product line, a shrinking product line. Like this person can just solve any problem. Um, And and I, I found that people actually use very similar language. So I've gradually come to the view that this that this axis PSHE is uh, one of the most unifying axes on how to judge um, seniority, to judge progress, and I think for people executives, this is especially true because right? the the core, if you take that that spectrum, the core of a people executive's job, the H and the E part, is the part that we kind of end up taking for granted, right? Can this person run a good recruiting pipeline? Can they run a good review process? Can they can they handle compensation? Can they deal with um, entrances and exits? Can they can they ha- can they handle new hire onboarding and so on? But the real the ones that really shine jump up a level, yeah. and they start taking problems that are harder. And you say, "Hey, I have a problem with diversity and inclusion. I have a problem with the pace of our pun- funnel. I have a problem with how to be a more distributed company." And they start solving those level of problems. And then the best ones they come to you and they say, "You're not even thinking about this, but here's the thing you need to be thinking about right now." And they start elevating to that P level. So it's sort of a long way around to describe this PSHE framework. But I found that to be the stickiest way to evaluate not only people executives, executives in general, but especially people executives. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, what's so interesting is the, you know, the, the desire to solve problems and that, that kind of inquisitive nature. Uh, I think that actually what I, I see more often these days is that even transcends HR in the people space. Where you know you, you'll see somebody who's in a CPO role, and you know their role is actually in some ways kind of like a hybrid COO CPO because they're they're beginning to even tackle and contribute in areas outside of what's traditionally thought of as people challenges. For sure. And so yeah, I think that that's a, a that's a really interesting way of framing it. Um, you touched on one kind of aspect of. Uh, of you know what certainly people and people operators are are navigating right now, and I want to kind of save this one as our last question. You know, you've been working in environments that have been distributed uh, and, and remote for years. You know, obviously at Coda, prior to that at YouTube. So you you've worked in those environments um, for quite some time. What are the keys? This is something that I think a lot of people teams are are navigating how to best kind of optimize for this. And I think we're still thinking through: Are we are we remote first? Are we work from anywhere? Are we hybrid? Are we anywhere on that spectrum? And I think there's you know lots of different uh, the ways that companies are approaching that. But in terms of like building good organizational rhythms and cadence in a distributed environment, what what tips do you have for you know people or business leaders to be thinking about as they're kind of going through that process? Well, one of my favorite topics. Uh, so so. <laughs> You know, as you mentioned, as context, um, Code is a very distributed team. We have been right from the start. Uh, and YouTube was also a very distributed team. And uh, we had eight engineering offices around the world and, you know, 20 plus sales and marketing offices around the world. Uh, there, there was an interesting phase and actually similar time frame when I was describing all the all the stuff around performance calibration. Um, there was a company wide discussion at Google where Larry came to each of us and said, uh, I think we should be a more centralized company. Um, and it was it was really interesting because, you know, in some ways, he was the biggest proponent of the distributed way that Google operated. And the, the you know, the the uh, the <coughs> the old folklore is that Larry's standing order to everybody at the company was if you can put three engineers in any office or any region, then you can open an office there. 
And, uh, and so we had this big discussion, this is like 2012, 2013, and said, we're going to, we're going to try to consolidate down. And the directive was um, to consolidate down every, every uh, division into just three offices. Um, and one of the offices had to be in California. And the, um, so YouTube was in eight, the Chrome team was in like 20, uh, the Maps team was in like 25. Um, and so we go through this like really hard discussion and, and Larry came after us uh, each one by one and tried to convince us. And, um, and actually, just so you know how the story played out, we ended up shutting down exactly one office. We shut down the Atlanta office. Um, and the, the outcry was so loud that the whole process stopped and we stopped doing it. But in the process, what happened was a real interrogation of our, why did we, why did we like our distributed setup? And so, so you asked me this question, you said, what, what do you think, um, you know, imagine I could snap my fingers and I could take, you know, YouTube had about 2000 people at the time. And I could just, I could just take your, you know, 2000 person team and I could have them magically here in San Bruno, California. And wouldn't you prefer that? Um, and I had to think really hard about it. And I said, like, what, you know, would I prefer that? And I, I, let's ignore for a moment the the uh, the practicality of that. Yeah. Like the logistics were impossible. First off, like I like there isn't even office space for that many people they didn't parking for these people. Like, but they, like and I and I responded with, no, I actually don't think that would be better. And it took a while for us to figure out why. And every every division lead it gradually figured this out through this process. And, you know, one one thing, you know, the. One reason was the obvious was that not everybody wants to live in California. And so I'm, I, everybody was deeply skeptical that the best talent all happens to be the set of people that find, you know, Northern California to be the, the right place to live. But the other one was this statement that I think became really important, which, which is that the best teams, the, the teams that really lean into being distributed helped them be a better team or a better company in general, even when they're in the same location. And so maybe I, I can describe a little bit what I mean by that. And, and it's probably worth noting, in my view, I think every team's distributed. This, this, I think it's a false choice. Are, yeah. are, are we going to be distributed or not? Like, first off, any team that has a sales team, you, or has a field sales team, you are, you're going to be distributed. You have at least one person who's not in the room. Um, but also, I would say, the moment you have multiple buildings, the moment you have multiple floors in a building, like you're already losing some element of what you think of as the we're all in one place. Right. So I think I think resisting that isn't quite the right way to think about it, um, but I think that this. If I go back to that that statement, teams that lean into the pros of being distributed helps them be a better company in general, even when they're in the same location. I think that's the the heart of what what we're really seeing here. I think what we're I think COVID, while being a terrible thing for the world in almost every way, uh, one silver lining is I think it has accelerated the distributed work trend by. Uh, by a decade or more. Yeah. Um, and I think each of us is learning which part of our processes can adapt and which, which ones can't. And, and we're all reinventing how we think about how we think about our teams. Um, so I wrote this doc about it. It's called Shashir's Guide to Distributed Teams. You can uh, find it. I, I, you can uh, link it in your show notes as well. Um, and it talks about uh, four or five different aspects of, of distributed teams. But I was going to, I was going to drill into just one in particular, for this conversation, which is, uh, which meetings. Yeah. And I think meet, meetings, you know, the reason to talk about meetings, obviously we spend a lot of our day in meetings. That's a, a sort of a re reality we've all discovered at the workplace. Um, and I do think that meetings are the backbone of many business processes. And that, you know, when, when people talk about, 
um, you know, how to run a better sales process, they often end up talking about the pipeline meeting or when they talk about how to be a better manager, they often talk about the one on one. And so thinking about meetings is, I think, really important. Um, and one of the things that I've learned over time is that the, the sort of simple principle is to design your meetings like you design your apps. And if you think about the, the thought we put into our products and our applications, and we think about what incentives they have and what do we want people coming back often or not? Do we want people, you know, how do we want the new, the, the onboarding flow to work? And so on. all these principles also apply uh, to meetings. And so I was going to describe a couple things that we do that might be helpful. As one example, at Coda Meetings, uh, we use a thing called Dory. And it's a uh, uh, simple idea, but you're, you know, we're having a meeting, there's a write-up. Um, at the bottom of that is a thing we call a Dory, which you can think of as a, a Q&A uh, question and answer upvoter. Um, it's a pretty simple idea. You, the, you can hit slash story in any Coda doc and you'll see one. Um, but the way it works is anybody adds questions and everybody else votes them up or down. Now, it's a, it's a simple idea. It's called Dory because it's named after the fish from Finding Nemo who asks all the questions. <laughs> right. um, and it was originally done, uh, we started this process at Google because uh, we use it for our big all hands. So Larry and Sergey used to do this thing on Fridays called TGIF and you know, it was tens of thousands of people and so they couldn't just take random questions. So people would add questions, and they would upvote and downvote them. But at Coda, we find that we do this even when meetings are just like three or four people. We still do it this way. And the reason, uh, if you sort of back up to design your meetings like you design your apps, there's a couple of things that come out of it. Number one, it equalizes the audience. I'm sure we've all been in meetings where the questions are dominated by the loudest voice or the highest paid person. You know, we call that the, the hippo. Uh, like all of those things are, are really bad. Right. And so how do you get around that? Well, you put it in this list and my, my questions go at the same level as everybody else's questions. Uh, the second thing we get out of it is you discuss what matters. So you walk out of the meeting and you say, hey, we didn't get through every question, but we handled everything with at least three upvotes. Well, that, now we feel a lot better. Uh, and, and, so, and the other thing we get out of it is you get actually much better form questions. Like people write their questions down to get much better form questions. So this is one thing we do regularly in meetings that, um, like I said, happen to have been happen to have been designed around distributed uh, our distributed environment. Like you couldn't, there's no easy way for people to interject their questions. But it turns out that even when we're all in the same place, we still do it the same way. Uh, one other example I'll give that I think might resonate with your with your audience is this thing we call pulse check. And you know, similar idea, but at the at the bottom of many Coda docs, uh, we'll have this pulse check where everybody gets a row to say how they feel about a decision. So you say. Hey, should we um, hire this person? Uh, should we launch this product? Um, should we sell the company? Should we buy the company? Um, and everybody gets a, a row where they fill in their their pulse. So it's usually on a scale of one to five, whether or not you agree, and a little uh, area for you to fill in why. But the key principle is everybody else's responses are hidden by default. Um, and so as you go through and you fill this out, you know what's the thing we're doing? What's the what's the design your meetings like? Design your apps. Well, we're avoiding groupthink. We're, we're, yeah. I'm sure we've all done this in a meeting where you say, should we hire this person? And you go around the room and say, we got to come to a decision. We're going to hire this person. And the first person says yes. And the second person says yes. And the third person has kind of no choice but to say yes. <laughs> and, right. and, and, you, and you've just trained your decision. So if I go back and say, wouldn't we all prefer to have teams that had less groupthink and a little bit less hierarchy and a little bit more purpose in what they discussed? Well, that sounds like really good things to do. 
And I think that if you design around it, then and rethink, and then I, you know, I sort of drilled in on meetings as just being one example. I think you'll end up with behaviors that are forced by being distributed, but actually end up being better for the company in general. And so, so that's maybe one, one way to think about, uh, I think the great distributed teams or the great teams are ones that lean into the pros of being distributed to help them be better companies in general. Yeah, I mean it's so interesting, and I will uh, for listeners. I will include a link uh, to that uh, that doc that uh, Shashir mentioned in the show notes, so you can review that. I've taken a look; it's actually really helpful, and I think it's interesting too when you you know in this environment we're, we're kind of at a stage now where early in the pandemic it was like boom shifting to remote overnight. Uh, people were in this kind of you know limbo stage. They didn't know you know at one point we were optimistically talking about return to work. You know now we're not having those conversations, especially in the U.S. Uh, and so now it's it's really uh, kind of a, a much larger resetting of 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 the nature of work, how work works, where it happens, when it happens. Uh, you know so many things that I think. Uh, were held by many to be true in February uh, will actually never be true again. And so I think it's a it's a really exciting time. And, and I appreciate you coming on the show and kind of sharing some of your experience, sharing some of these tools and the way that you're approaching it. I think it's really helpful for uh, myself and listeners. And, uh, and, and again, definitely go to uh, Coda. There's lots of resources, not just from Shashir, but actually uh, people docs, people ops docs. Uh, there's a lot of things there and it's all free and it's all open source. So definitely recommend you checking that out. And Shashir, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. That was a lot of fun, Lars. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Redefining HR. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, the Redefining HR book or free resources, be sure to check out redefininghr.com. And if you dig this podcast, why don't you share it with your CEO, your executive team, and your friends to help them discover what Redefining HR is all about. If you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on whatever podcast delivery vehicle your ears prefer. See you next week.